This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Before I start on today's topic, I'd like to do a little follow-up to the last talk I had about Ted the Plumber. And I forgot to mention this, and this was one of the biggest lessons that I got out of this whole experience of knowing Ted and going to his funeral and then pondering in the Spirit the lessons that God was teaching me. One great lesson was that I was really feeling called to be on my deathbed daily, to surrender life daily. And the thought that I had that was so helpful to me was this. I want to be on my deathbed daily so that when the time comes for my spirit to leave my body, it will be familiar territory. That was the feeling that I had, the thought that I had, that I really want to surrender so much, so regularly, that when the time comes, and we're all going to cross this border at some point, unless the Lord comes, at some point our spirit's going to leave our body. That may be in a surprising way, or it may be slow in coming. But I want that to be familiar territory. There's a regular surrender that just goes on. And the transition from life on this earth to uh, what comes next is one that is familiar. A constant saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. A constant letting go, not grasping to things that are not eternal. I want to surrender daily so that, as others have said, when the time comes to die, the only thing left to do is to die. It can sound a little morbid, all this talk of death. And yet, Jesus talked about it a lot because God's way is this eternal life follows our death. When we're living by the Spirit in the kingdom of God, this eternal, abundant, overflowing life is always the result of the planting of this seed in death. There's always a harvest, a good harvest, if we persevere. As a matter of fact, I've been thinking about doing a teaching on harvesting in the Scriptures because the Lord often uses this image of harvesting when talking about spiritual things. And it is very often the case that we sow a seed in a hard situation, and the result is something really good. In Hebrews, it says, there is a harvest of righteousness and peace for those people who have allowed themselves to be trained by hardships. So we plant seeds in hard times and reap good things at the time of the harvest. Well, today we're going to have the first of what I think will be several such talks spread out over the coming months or years because it can really go on and on and on for a long time, and we'll just take our first step today. We're going to look at God's character and his promises. John Bunyan wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress, and some of you may have read it or have heard of it. If you haven't, I encourage you to try to track down a copy of it and read it. It's very good. The plot centers on the journey of a person, a man named Christian, from his hometown, the city of destruction, to the celestial city. 
And so this is an allegory. It's a story about what it is to be a Christian and to walk on the path of righteousness from where we are to God's heavenly city. And one part of the story that I want to point up in this context is, as Christian is walking along the path that God has for him, he comes to the Slough of Despond. A slough is a swamp. That's an English word for a swampy, low, wet area. And this is what one of the characters says about this slough of despondency. Despondency is hopelessness and just giving up all thought of being saved. And one of the characters says, This miry slough is such a place as cannot be mended. That is, there's no fixing it. It is the descent whither the scum and filth that attends conviction for sin doth continually run, and therefore it is called the slough of despond. For still, as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition, there ariseth in his soul many fears and doubts and discouraging apprehensions, which all of them get together and they settle in this place. And this is the reason for the badness of this ground. So this image is really, really good. It's a low spot in life where all of these doubts and apprehensions and difficulties, discouragements, they all flow down into this low area and it becomes a swamp. And Christians walk through it. I imagine that everybody listening to my voice at some point has been in something like the slough of despond, this swamp of hopelessness. We're awakened about our lost condition, and yet there are fears and doubts, discouragements and worries. They all come together and they settle in this place and we go through it. And it's hard. Well, the character, Christian, is down in this slough. He gets down in it because that is the path that God has for him. The path to the celestial city runs right through this bad ground. And when he's down there, he starts to be hopeless, that there's just no way out of this. And a character comes up to help him in this slough of despond. And the character says, you know, I can't really get you out of there, but what you need to do is feel around with your feet down in all of this swampy muck feel with your feet and you'll feel that there are some steps down there that were put there long ago because the creator knew that this ground was going to be bad and he put steps down underneath there. You can't see them, but if you feel around with your feet, you'll find these steps and then step on these steps and then walk out of this despondency, come up out of this difficult ground. And in this allegory, those steps that the Creator has put in this bad ground, those are the promises of God. This image is wonderful. As we are caught in hopelessness and despair, discouragement, doubts, and fears, God has put his promises there for us, and they are rock solid. And if we stand on those promises of God and step on them, they'll lift us up and out. So I come back to that image pretty regularly. If I'm not in the middle of a difficult time, I'm often working with people who are in really difficult times. And as I talk to people and pray for them and with them, very often I'll pray, Lord, what is your promise for this person? What is the scripture that you have for them? What is the thing that is solid, regardless of where they are in life, 
What is the thing that you have for them that they can step on your promise for them? And this leads me to another thought that I've had, and I think I shared it before. There's this question, where is our faith? Our faith should not be in our ability to understand or to do the will of God. When I was a young believer, I used to think, how can I really know God's will when I pray for an answer? How would I really know? Because I'm so imperfect and so fallen. And in that case, I was putting my faith in myself. I was putting my faith in my weakness instead of in God's ability to break through my weakness, to speak unmistakably. He can do it. I mean, I can't, but my faith needs to be in him. And likewise, our faith should be in God, in his character, and his promises, not in ourselves or our ability to understand or to do. Our faith is in him. And so this is one reason that I wanted to share this now, to look at what is God's character, not to look at ourselves, but to look at God and his character and his promises. So first we'll look at a few things about God's character. There's a tremendously long list of character qualities of the Lord that are mentioned in Scripture. So I'll start with a few, and like I said, in future talks we'll cover more of these. Character is defined as the mental and moral qualities that are distinctive to an individual, things that define the moral personality. So what has God revealed about himself? What are those things that reveal his moral qualities and his mental qualities, the way he thinks? How does he reveal himself? Before looking at specific scriptures, I wanted to mention something that I thought of years ago, three things, three parts of his character that really bring me hope and are very, very helpful when I look at his character, what he's revealed about himself and his values. First, starts with the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis. Our God is a God who brings order from chaos. He is creative. You remember in Genesis 1, everything is formless and void. There's chaos. There's no order to anything. And throughout the first part there of Genesis, God brings order. That's what he does. He's creative. He brings order from chaos. And, of course, there are times when we're going through chaotic times and we don't quite understand, and it seems like we're in the middle of a big storm. And God's character is that he brings order from chaos. So let's remember that about him. He loves to bring order from chaos. Also, he is a redeemer. Job 19 says, I know that my redeemer lives. Well, sometimes to be a redeemer, redemption, those terms can seem a little churchy, and we don't really know exactly what it means, but to redeem something is to restore the honor of, or the worth, or the reputation. To redeem something is to uh, recover ownership by paying a specified sum for something. That's to redeem something, to recover from captivity. God is a redeemer. He can restore honor and worth and reputation. Not only can he, he loves to. That's what he does. That's actually why Jesus came, was to recover ownership by paying a price to bring people out of captivity and bondage. God is a redeemer. God brings order from chaos, and he's a redeemer. 
And then one of the greatest qualities of his character is that he loves to bring life from death. I mentioned it earlier. Here we come to it again, but this is one of his characteristics. He brings to life that which is completely dead. He brings order from chaos, he redeems, and he brings life from death. A really good example of this, of course, is in John 11, when Lazarus was rotting in the ground for four days. Jesus came and knew that Lazarus had been there for so long. As a matter of fact, Jesus delayed his arrival until after Lazarus had been buried and had been in that ground for a long time. Jesus brought Lazarus back to life when he was actually literally rotting away. His body was falling apart. And in John eleven twenty five, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? If we believe in Jesus, we will not taste death. That's his promise. And that's a promise that comes to us in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all talk about the fact that followers of Jesus are not going to taste death. And the Bible says that Jesus tasted death for us. It's really remarkable and beautiful, God's character. I'll say them again because they're really important and very helpful. God brings order from chaos. He loves to redeem that which is lost. And he loves to bring life from death. Another one of his characteristics is wisdom. I'm sure you've thought about it. I'll just say a few words here about how wise God is. Romans 11, Paul writes, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible is it for us to understand his decisions and his ways. That's from Romans 11. How great is God's wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to see clearly every option in a situation and then to devise a pathway for perfect results and to achieve those results in the most perfect ways. That's what wisdom is, to see all the options and to make a way for just the perfect outcome. God is wise. He understands it all. We don't. He does. One of his characteristics is that he is wise. Another way to say this is, God makes no mistakes. He's so perfectly wise that he can see everything. And he's a really good shepherd, and he will find that way through without making a single mistake. He is perfectly wise. Those of you who are parents will really understand this. If you have a child, that child doesn't see nearly as much as we do, just based on our experience. We know how things are going to go. We understand different things that are affecting certain situations, and our children don't understand those things. So in that sense, we are more wise than our children. And as we grow up, we hopefully become more and more wise. Well, God created everything. He doesn't just have to experience things to learn. He knows it all. He made it all. He understands the way things are perfectly. He sees it all perfectly. And we need to put our faith in his wisdom, not in our weakness.
because he is a wise and loving father. He is so wise. He never makes mistakes. All right, well, moving on, those were some of the characteristics of God, but I'd like to now look at some of the promises. I'm scrolling through my notes here, and I have another eight pages of characteristics of God. (laughs) Eternal, omnipresent, immutable, omnipotent, holy. I'm going to talk about all of those, but let's look at promises here. I'll start with Colossians chapter 1. This is a scripture that's been meaningful to me for quite a while now as I visit lots of different churches. You remember in Colossians, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he's never been there. He's never visited them, but he loves them, and uh, his dear friends have been there uh, working with that church. And Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, My purpose is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this is why I'm sharing with you. I really hope that you'll be encouraged in your heart and that you'll have a better understanding of the riches of God. And his promises are so helpful because not only do we need to understand his character, but also his promises. What has he promised to do? What are the things that he promises to us? And in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about this. Let me quote verses 3 and 4. God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, Part of the reason I'm talking is so that we'll have more knowledge about him who called us. And he called us by his own glory and goodness, not our glory and goodness. We don't have glory. We don't have goodness apart from him. Verse 4, through these, meaning through God's glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, through these promises, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world that is caused by evil desires. Now take a minute to look at this. Peter is saying that by God's glory and his goodness, by his own characteristics, by his character, God has given us promises. And the reason he's given us these promises is so that we can participate in his nature. That's why he's given us promises. Not so that we'll get through a hard time and then go back to living our own life, our sinful, empty human life. He's given us promises so that we can escape the corruption in the world that is caused by evil desires. So that's an image of this slough of despond or the swamp of hopelessness, corruption in the world that's caused by evil desires. He's given us these promises so that we can participate in his nature. Not only are we set free, we actually step into his righteousness. We put on his righteousness. We share in his right living, his divine nature. That's what he wants. That's why he's given us great and precious promises. Now, the thought comes to me now, if you're looking for a scripture to meditate on, maybe this is a good one for you. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. 
And through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. I feel like I could talk for another hour on that, but we'll move on. So the first promise I want to look at here is in Hebrews 13. And the writer of Hebrews says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. This promise that God will never leave you, he will never forsake you, is given here in the context of concern about not having enough money, a lack of contentment. Isn't that interesting? People are just so concerned about having enough money. And I know some people listening to me right now are quite poor. And maybe this is a very real need that you have. But I encourage you, you keep your life free from the love of money. And you ask God to teach you how to be content with what you have, even if it's very little. You remember Paul said that when he had very little or when he had a lot, he had learned to do everything through Christ who strengthens him, whether well-fed or hungry. Well, that's a lesson you can only learn when you're poor and don't have enough. Anyway, the promise is God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. That's a promise that he made. Now, I've talked to people, and I've been in situations like this, but not recently, because now I understand this. I stand on this promise pretty regularly. But people come into these situations where they feel like God is far off. Where is he? He's left me. Well, honestly, sometimes that sense can come because of sin. And if we sin, we can break fellowship with God. If we walk away from him, he'll allow us to walk away from him. And yet he is always there, ready. If we repent, if we humble ourselves, kneel down and ask for him to forgive us of these sins, if we confess, he hasn't left us, he's there, he's right there. And he said, never will I forsake you. I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. That's one of his promises. So sometimes we go through these periods in life when we feel like God is far off, but he's not, because he has made a promise. And if he's letting us have this feeling that he's not close, I think that's perhaps a, a wonderful thing because that teaches us that we really want him. Uh, we taste what it is to be without him and it makes us want to be with him more. So we have to trust his promises. And that's in Hebrews chapter 13. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. In Matthew chapter 6, there is a promise that I return to often and I very often use it when I'm talking to other people who need some help. Folks will come up and ask me for wisdom or advice or guidance about things. And I'll often say this promise from Matthew chapter 6. Because people don't need to hear from Mike Cantrell. They need to hear from the Lord. And it's easy enough to ask a human being for their advice. But then if we don't like it, turn away and say, well, that person doesn't really know everything about me. But when we ask God for advice and he speaks, then it's the real deal. And that's what I want people to have is a real connection with the Lord. So here is Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room, 
close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen, and then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Jesus doesn't say, then your Father who sees what is done in secret may reward you, or probably will reward you, or likely will reward you. Or you go pray to your Father who sees what is done in secret and then wait a while and see if he gives you what you're asking for or if he rewards you, of course, which are two different things. But what Jesus says is, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, sometimes we pray prayers, we're asking for an answer, and God's answer is no. No is an answer. So we can say that God answers prayer even when he says no, or he may say, wait, just wait. But that's an answer too. But he's going to reward you. And that reward can come in many different forms, not just in terms of an answer to prayer or a result that you might hope for. One of the rewards of God is peace that passes understanding. We may have a situation that brings a lot of anxiety God, what is going on? I'm not sure. I need wisdom. I hope to see these things. What's going on? And the reward may be just a peace that goes beyond all those questions. God is going to reward you. We need to be willing to receive whatever reward he gives, but the promise is that God is going to reward you. So when you go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen, when you do all of this in secret, God sees it, and he will reward you. Go in with that attitude. It's his promise. It's not selfishness on our part. He's promised this. That's a promise of a loving father. When we humble ourselves and take our prayers to him, he promises a reward. It's really beautiful. We don't deserve it. We definitely do not deserve it. And yet he has promised it. That's a beautiful thing. Now he also promises other things, many other things. In Matthew 7, we read Jesus saying, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, why do I put this on this list of the promises of God? Because not all of his promises are on the positive side. Not all of his promises can make us feel secure and warm. Jesus is telling us the truth, and he promises to say to people, I never knew you. And look at this in Matthew 7. These are church people. He said, many people are going to say this to him. Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform miracles? Wow, those are church folks, right? But Jesus says, not everyone who calls me Lord is going to actually enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's only the people who do his will That's the people that are going to enter into heaven. Another place, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, and yet you don't do what I say? And that is a very legitimate thing for the Lord to say. 
be like your boss if you're at work and your boss says, why do you call me your boss, but you're, you're not following my directions? I'm not actually your boss then. And Jesus is saying, I'm not your Lord if you're not actually following my direction. Now, how do we get around this question of how people will say that they had prophesied in his name and done miracles in his name? I have a couple of thoughts about that. They could be wrong. They could be saying, well, I was prophesying in the name of Jesus, but they weren't actually saying words that came from him. False prophets. Some of them may have been trying to make money or have fame as spiritual leaders and using the name of Jesus in vain. That is, that they were calling him Lord, but they weren't actually following him. Jesus says that there are false prophets that can perform miracles that would deceive people, even could deceive the elect if that were possible. So there's a lot of false prophets and false miracles out there. What's the key here? Jesus is promising that there is a judgment day. And he's promising that he doesn't show favoritism. And he's promising that he will say to people, Plainly, I didn't know you. He's promising that this day is coming. Now, some of you may feel uncomfortable hearing this, and I think you may be tasting the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Our God does not show favoritism, and it is very clearly possible to be involved in, quote, Christian ministry and not know Jesus. There are going to be a lot of broken people those days. I've been thinking about doing a sermon entitled, Many. There are quite a few places where Jesus uses this word. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. And here he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he'll say, I didn't know you. That's a promise from Jesus. That stands on his character, his righteous character. And this promise should prompt us to really know him and do what he says. Not just play at being Christians or going to church or living a life that is better than the people around us, <laughs> which is surely not the case anyway. We really need to know the Lord and obey him. Because not everyone who calls him Lord is actually in the kingdom of heaven. So here we come to it again. The thing that you'll hear my daughter say at the end of this talk. Jesus said, now that you know these things, you're going to be blessed if you do them. The Lord is all about doing. Knowing and abiding and letting his life flow through us. And then results. Coming out of this flow of God's life the acting out of the will of the Father, so that we really are members of his body. And he's the head guiding us in every way. So just to close up and wrap up a few thoughts, a reminder that our faith is not in our weakness. Our faith is not in our ability to hear well. I encourage you, please, do not put your faith in yourself don't put your faith in your weakness. Do not put your faith in your ability to hear the voice of God. 
Our faith is in Him. Our faith is in His strength. Our faith is in His character. Our faith is in His promises. Put your faith in Him. Take your eyes off yourself. Don't even think about yourself. Put your faith in Him. And this is the God that we serve. A God who has a character that is right and strong and true and a God who gives promises so that we can escape the corruption of this world and walk with him. This is the God we serve and there is no other. Friends, until next time, I do pray that God will continue to reveal to you his ways and his will because his ways are good. They're really good. And they always bring peace to the soul. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all. Music